Let's turn to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. One of our favorite pictures from our wedding day was captured by the photographer that we had hired for that particular day, just as we were leaving the building to depart for our honeymoon. And we didn't know, well, we knew that he was supposed to be taking pictures here and there, uh, but we didn't know in that moment that he was taking a picture. We weren't posing for the picture. Actually, of all the pictures that we paid for to receive, it's the only picture we like from the whole day. Isn't that terrible? But that picture uh, captures, I think, the emotion that we were feeling at that moment, our joy, our excitement, the hope that we had. And, you know, pictures, especially candid pictures, are like that. It's one of the reasons that we like candid pictures. There's a place to have a posed picture where you stand and make sure everyone is smiling and looking at the camera. The more kids you add to your family, the harder that gets. The longer the stretch gets between those kind of pictures for that very reason. And uh, no, stop pulling your sister's hair. Look over here. Stop. No, the squirrel's not interesting. We're at the cameras here. But you know, in the midst of those posed pictures... There's often candid moments that also get captured, which become treasures for us. A candid picture. The reason that it's special to us is because it captures something that posing cannot. It captures the reality of the moment. The word candid means real or true or genuine. It captures the real person in a moment when they were not expecting to have a picture taken. Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, is like a candid snapshot of the new man. What is it like when someone walks in the Spirit, when they put on the new man and they allow Christ to be formed in them, what kind of a life would you expect to see? If you snapped a picture at any minute without them looking, what would the spirit-filled Christian appear like to the camera? Especially if the camera could pick up on their spiritual qualities, what would the camera show in that moment when they think that no one is looking and they're not expecting to have a photo taken? The truth is that even when no one is looking, the new man, the spirit-filled man, will behave in predictable ways that we will recognize as being the fruit of the Spirit. Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 says this, Walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. Two considerations this morning. First of all, the walk of the new man. Second of all, the words of the new man. We notice in verse 5, he commands us, walk in wisdom toward them that are without. Now you'll notice 
that the context of verses 5 and 6 is the behavior of the believer towards those that are without. It is his walk in regards to those who are outside of Christ. It is his words towards those who do not know the Lord. You know, up to this point, we've been looking at the the idea of the walk of a believer as it pertains to other believers, as we are relating to one another. But now we're considering what should take place when we are out in the world among people who don't know the Lord. What should our walk and what should our words be like? You'll notice that he describes this walk in verse 5 as walking in wisdom. Wisdom is a comprehensive word in the Bible. It really encompasses the entire package of God's instructions about the best way to live life. And and we would even go beyond just calling them instructions about the best way to live life. And we would call them the commands of God, his expectations for how we should order our steps. So when we talk about wisdom, whether it's in the book of Proverbs or the book of Ephesians or here in the book of Colossians, wisdom is the ability to take what God says we ought to do and work that into our life. You see, the problem is, it's easy to become a theoretical Christian. We can easily sit around and discuss what other people should and shouldn't do and how they should maybe make this choice, and I think probably they should do that, and we can discuss the ills of our world But wisdom is when I take God's instruction and I put them to work in my life and it begins to change the way that I put one foot in front of the other. You notice how he's talking about walking. He's not talking about the physical act of walking so much as he's talking about the moment-by-moment choices that we're making in our life, the decisions that we're making about where to go and what to do and what to wear and what to listen to and how to behave and what relationships to have. And he says, make sure that you're walking in wisdom. The practical implementation of God's law into our own lives makes a massive difference in what our life looks like to those who are looking on from the outside. Now, you could remember that Jesus summed the law of God up in this way. He said that we are to love the Lord our God with our, all of our heart, soul, and mind. And we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And it's interesting if you take those two broad laws and carry them back to the Old Testament and just overlay them over the Ten Commandments, which is the basis of God's moral law, you'll find that all of those Ten Commandments fit neatly into those two commandments. And we realize that our problem when we're not walking according to God's law is a problem of misplaced love. The reality is the reason we struggle with the law of God is because we love ourselves more than God. We love ourselves more than our neighbor. We have a heart problem that needs to be dealt with. And when you got saved, God should have dealt with that heart problem. And the reality is that when you put on this new man, you should be seeing a real difference in your life. You should be seeing the Holy Spirit of God shaping you and molding you and changing you so that you will, in fact, practically walk in wisdom. In wisdom. Now, 
This morning, it's not our purpose to give a comprehensive view of all of the areas of life that this is touching on, but just understand that it really is touching on everything in our life. God wants us to be wise believers. He wants us to be wise children of God, putting on this new man and walking in a way that is pleasing to God. But more than pleasing to God, even in addition to that, and obviously that's our highest goal, He wants us to be walking in such a way that it affects people who are around us who don't know the Lord. And that is the specific meaning there when he says, towards those who are without. It's the idea that there are people who are without of Christ. They are are not in Christ. They do not have the same salvation that we enjoy. They don't have the same eternal hope. They don't have the same understanding of the gospel. They're walking according to a different way. And God's plan is for our walk to impact them, for our walk to be seen by them, and for our walk to be directed towards them. Walk in wisdom. You see, you've heard it said before, it's a dog-eat-dog world. And you've just got to get out there and I mean, the implication is you've got to be a dog and eat everybody else. But that's not the way for a Christian to live. That's not how God intends for us to be walking. Even when we are around people who are living by a different set of rules, you need to understand that God's rules, God's laws are still effective. There are people who fool themselves with this idea and say, well, you know, you just can't live that way when you're around lost people because they'll just take advantage of it. You know, you've, you've got to show a strong face and you've really got to let them know how it is. No, you know, God wants us to behave according to the character of Christ. Amen. He wants us to walk in wisdom towards those that are without. Now, he adds this addendum in verse 5, which helps us to understand what he means redeeming the time, redeeming the time. This is a parallel passage to the passage that's found in Ephesians where we are instructed to redeem the time because the days are evil. You see, there's an understanding that our walk has a limited time of impact. What I mean by that is we're only here for so long. We only get so much time to be able to have an impact on the lives of others. There's a rare number of people that will have an impact beyond their years or beyond their life, perhaps through their writings or through their broadly published testimony. But the average believer, that would be most of us who are here today, maybe all of us, we're going to live and die and life is going to go on for other people. And so we have, a, we have a time that God has given to us, a window of opportunity. And actually, the reason that God has given us that time, and I'm referring to that time as the time between when you trusted Christ and the time that God takes you home to be with himself, God gives you that window of opportunity, however long that is, so that you can fulfill a particular purpose. He has something that he wants you to do. And the hint here in verse 5 is that that purpose has everything to do with your walk towards those who are without. Or in other words, your impact on others for the cause of Christ and with the hope of the gospel. 
There's only so much time that we have. When we think about time, we're reminded this morning that time is a finite resource. It's fun talking to my boys, my littlest boys, Caleb and Philip, especially Philip. And hey, there he is. I see his eyeballs. So Philip, Philip likes quarters. And the other day he found a quarter at the house that we were staying at. And he was so excited. I had to tell him, by the way, we were staying in this rental house, VRBO or something like that. Finally, he kept bringing things to me that he was finding. I'm like, son, no more going under the bed. No looking in the corners, just leave it alone, all right? But he came back with a quarter. So, you know, in his mind, a quarter is a really valuable thing. And I've tried to explain to my children, I remember when, you know, when I was a kid, you could go to the, go to the store and buy a Snickers bar with a quarter. Any of you remember those days? Can't do that anymore. So, you know, he gets a quarter, he wants to go shopping. He wants to go to the store and buy something. And I'm trying to explain to him, honestly, son, I don't know that there's anything in the store you can buy for a quarter anymore. We need to save up a couple more quarters before you can even get a little pack of gum or something like that. I'm trying to help him to understand. But see, in his mind, money like that is an infinite resource. If you have a quarter, you could buy anything. You could just buy a car, a house. You could buy anything in the store. We go shopping and he's like, I've got two quarters in my pocket. I want this toy. I'd like this thing. I'd like this other thing. See, he doesn't understand value. He doesn't understand it's finite. I'm going to suggest to you this morning that you and I are often like this in regards to time. We are not thinking biblically and realistically about the fact that time for us, is not an infinite resource. We are existing in time and space for a season, and that season is quickly passing away. Every moment that God gives to us, every minute of the 1,440 that you get in a day is valuable. And it's made by God to be in such a way that you cannot hoard it, You cannot store it up. You cannot save it. You can only choose how you will spend every moment as it is passing by. Because time is a finite resource that is quickly going by us. Now, I'm not suggesting this morning that you and I should be hurried or harried in our lives. Sometimes people delight in living in a way that they're always rushing around from one thing to the other, and they're stressed out, and they're panicking, and you ask them, why are you doing this? I'm redeeming the time, brother. The time is short. But that's not how Jesus ever lived. If you study the life of Christ, though he was extremely purposeful and intentional in how he invested every moment, Jesus was never in a hurry. He was never stressed out. He was never pinched for time. He was never saying to one person, I don't have time for you. I've got this other thing over here. He was always balancing his priorities. It's a marvel to me because I'll confess to you, I have been stressed out. 
I have been in a hurry. I have felt the pressure of, I have too many things to do and not enough time to get it done. Have any of you ever experienced that? But Jesus did not. You and I, in order to redeem the time, need to be very purposeful in how we spend the moments of our lives. I want to just add this. God is not opposed to us resting. Actually, rest is an important part of the rhythm that God has built into our our lives. He's made us in such a way, for instance, that our bodies require nightly rest, nightly sleep. Without that nightly sleep, we're doing harm to our bodies and we're messing up that rhythm. And there's an interesting thing about when you go to sleep, you're not getting a lot of work done, are you? You're not accomplishing your to-do list. Maybe even some of you, like me, woke up in the middle of the night. I don't know why I do this. Three o'clock in the morning, boing! And I started thinking about, I got to get that done, and I got to get that done, and I got to get that done, and I got to get that done. And I'm laying there in bed thinking, stop thinking about the things you're going to do because you can't do them right now anyway. Go to sleep. Go to sleep. That probably doesn't work for you either. Didn't work for me. I was up from three o'clock on. All right. Brother Wilhite says it's because I'm getting older. Could be. We need to redeem the time. We don't need to be stressed out, but we do need to be purposeful. There's a lot of things that would lead us to waste our time. But now I want you to really think about what he's saying in verse five, because there's a, a specific purpose that he has for saying we are to be redeeming the time. To redeem something means to buy it back, to to purchase it back. And one of the major reasons that God gives us these moments that we have, this time, is so that we can invest and use that time to impact those who are without, those who are outside of Christ. Because the purpose is we want to see more people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. But the sad truth is that many of us are selfish in the use of our time and we're not investing at all in eternal things. We're not concerned about those who are around us. So he says, look, if you took a a picture of the new man, the man who's filled with the Spirit, what you would find is that in every moment, he's looking to maximize the opportunities to impact others who are without those who are outside of Christ. So we notice that the walk of the new man is a walk of wisdom, and it's a walk that is very purposeful in how it invests. And I want to ask you just for a moment before we move to the next consideration to ask yourself this question, am I purposeful in how I invest the moments of my day? Or do I find myself frittering the moments away? Just They just pass by and I think, what, what did I do with the last hour? What did I do with the last two hours? What did I do with the afternoon? What did I do with the whole day? Do you find yourself purposely investing? And if you say, I'm very purposeful, what are you purposeful about? What are you investing your life in? Are you primarily investing your life in accumulating things for this world? Or are you primarily investing in the world that is to come by winning souls, by being the witness that God wants you to be. So we notice the walk 
of the new man. But the second consideration, which is in verse 6, deals with the words of the new man. And certainly our words have something to do with our walk. And I think that's why these two thoughts, these two considerations are put together in the same paragraph because they really complement each other. They have something to do with each other. So he says, as we're walking in wisdom towards those that are without redeeming the time, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. So when we think about the words of the new man, what does it look like when a man has put on the new man, when he's filled with the Spirit of God, what will be the impact of uh, or upon the words that he is using? And I want you to understand that God wants to impact your tongue. You see, we're told in the book of James that the tongue is a world of iniquity. That tongue, and not just the words that we say verbally, this can, this can be the words that we type, the words that we write, the words that we text. Those words can be full of all kinds of evil, can't they? So he says the man who has put on the new man, the man who is filled with the Spirit, his words are going to be impacted. In fact, I would go so far as to say, This is one of the primary ways that you can know if you are filled with the Spirit is by listening to the words that you are using and the Spirit behind those words. So he says, first of all, that our words should be gracious. And there's a modifier in there. He says that they are to be always with grace. Always with grace. That means there's no exception to the rule. Our words should always be gracious. The idea of gracious speech is a rule for the Christian's speech and not an exception. We tend to think, oh man, that guy got me really upset. But you know, I'm really proud of myself because I was nice to him in return. And we think, in that one moment I was gracious, I'm doing so good. And God says he wants us to always be like that. He wants our words to always be with grace. Now, you and I have a tendency to think of powerful words as words that are irrefutable or sharp or angry. We think powerful words are loud words. We think they're roaring words. We think they're angry words. And when we want to get our point across or when we want to get our way, this is how we express with power in this way. But I want to point out to you that most, if not all of the time, that is the power of the flesh, not the power of the spirit. In the Bible, we find that God has a different way of looking at it. God knows that gracious words are the most powerful words that we could ever speak. Kind words. Patient words. You see, grace, the word grace means to receive something that you don't deserve. And in the context, what he's talking about is words that we use when the other person deserves a different kind of word a different tone of voice. And we're pretty certain that we know exactly how to address them. God says, don't give in to that temptation. Let your words, let your speech be always with grace. Now, 
honestly, if you try this on for size, and you just think back, for instance, over the last week, parents, how did you talk to your children? How did you talk to your coworkers? How did you talk to that person that was supposed to be helping you in that office? How did you talk to your neighbor in that conflict that you're having? You might find that gracious words tend to be few and far between. But what we know is that God has dealt with us according to grace, and we should deal with others in the same manner. We should have gracious words. You could answer the question for yourself, what do gracious words look and sound like? And you might find that that is a challenging test for your speech. So he says we should be always speaking with grace, but then he goes on in verse 6, and he adds another description to our speech. He says that our speech should be seasoned with salt. Now, this is interesting. I wonder what this means. Perhaps we should get the salt shaker, and whenever we're going to talk, stick our tongue out, shake some salt on it, and then now I'm ready to talk. I've got some salt in my mouth. No, probably not. Probably not what he's talking about. Interesting thought here. I looked it up. Salt in the New Testament. Every time salt is used in the New Testament, it refers to the believer's evangelism. It refers to the way that a believer is an example of Christ and speaks of the gospel of Christ. Every single time. So when our speech is seasoned with salt, we find, I believe that our words should not only be words that are gracious, but our words should be words that give people hope in the gospel. In other words, in every conversation that we have, in every interaction, especially as the context is showing us with those who are outside of Christ, we should be looking for opportunities to promote the good news That Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again and there is hope of salvation. So in my interactions with unsaved people, with those who are outside of Christ, I want to be aware of the opportunities that God is giving me to share the gospel with other people. Now, if you get angry with that customer service individual and you give them a piece of your mind... Are you really going to be able to effectively share the gospel with them after you get done telling them how stupid and incompetent they are? I doubt it. In fact, I'll go further and say, please don't give them a tract from our church. Please don't. That's a horrible testimony. They're not going to think, oh, I want to be a Christian just like this person. But if in that situation you treat that same individual with grace and kindness... You, you bend over backwards to give them the benefit of the doubt and, and to be kind to them, even though you may feel that you're not being treated correctly. Would you then have an opportunity to share the gospel with them? I think that you would have much more of a chance than if you were rude and angry and inconsiderate and unkind. So gracious words lead to opportunities for our speech to be seasoned with salt. Now, all too often in our walk... We may be gracious with the words that we speak, 
but not looking for the opportunity to share the gospel. And this requires boldness, and it requires us to be, if you will, paying attention on our game, looking for what God is doing. It's an amazing thing to me how this works. When I am especially tuned in to what God is doing in the world around me, and I'm really looking for opportunities to speak to people about Christ, it's incredible how many opportunities I could have in a single day to speak to folks. But when I am not paying attention, when I am focused on myself and doing the things that I want to do and going about my business, I can go day after day after day without speaking to one person about Christ. Now, does that mean that God went on vacation all those other days and he wasn't working and he wasn't presenting me with opportunities? No, it's more likely that I wasn't walking in the Spirit and I wasn't paying attention to what God was doing. Now, I might have been kind and gracious, and accommodating, and all those sorts of things. But if I didn't step forward in faith with boldness and share the the hope of Christ with people, have I really capitalized on the time that God has given to me? Have I redeemed the time? And obviously, the question answers itself. I have not. So the words of the new man are not only gracious, but they take the opportunity to share the gospel with the people around him. And you'll notice as he builds on this theme in verse 6, he says, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. So we're to have gracious words. We're to have words that are seasoned with the gospel. But then he's telling us that there's going to be occasions when we are going to need to give an answer to people who are going to, it's assumed in the passage, that they are going to be asking us questions or perhaps making accusations, or perhaps jumping to conclusions that they're going to voice to us. Now, he seems to particularly have in mind those who are without Christ, those who are outside of Christ, who have some objections to Christianity. Have you ever met anyone like that? People who have objections to Christianity, objections to the Bible, objections to the gospel. And if they find out that you're a Christian and that you believe in the gospel, they they want to discuss those things with you. They want to tell you, yeah, but I, I want to tell you about this thing and I want to ask you about that. And sometimes we can get ourselves in situations where we just are like, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to answer this person. So how do we prepare for that? Well... One way, there's more than one way, but one way is we make sure that we have the new man on, that we're filled with the Spirit, that we're leaning on the Lord, and you will be surprised how in those situations, when you're filled with the Spirit, God will help you to be able to give an answer. Amen. I've been in situations before where I, didn't, I was struggling to figure out what to say to this person And I'm asking the Lord silently, help me here, Lord. I need an answer for this person. And and the Lord would remind me of something that I read or of a, a verse that I've memorized and that was on my heart that would be the answer to the objection that they had, to the thing that they were struggling with. And God would guide them into truth through the words that he would give to me. This is how God works. This is how God wants to work. He doesn't want us to... Just walk away from every discussion. Now, there's obviously discussions that are unprofitable. There's a time and a place to just say, you know, this discussion is not really going anywhere. 
I think I'll, I'll just move along. Sometimes you're going to run into people who are characterized as steamrollers in the conversation. They, they delight in just dominating the conversation. They won't let you get a word in edgewise. They won't let you give an answer. But there are a lot of people who are out there who have genuine concerns about Christianity, genuine questions, and no one has ever really listened to those questions and answered those questions for them. And if a believer is filled with the Spirit they would have an opportunity to have an honest discussion with that individual about the things that are causing them uh, confusion about the gospel, and you would have an opportunity to provide an answer for them that could solve something in their mind that would lead them closer to Christ. That's what we're talking about. But in order to get to that place, we have to make sure that we are filled with the Spirit of God. We have to make sure that we've put on the new man, that we're ready for those encounters. And here's what I want you to understand. God is in the business during our daily walk of bringing us into those encounters. I believe this with all my heart, that God left us here so that we could be his ambassadors. And as his ambassadors, he is busy arranging the path of our life the circumstances of our life with people who have genuine questions, people who need to hear the truth, and he needs us to be on duty. He needs us to be paying attention. He needs us, in short, to stop living life for ourselves and start living life for him. Start living life with his priorities instead of my priorities. So when I am putting on the new man... I find that my walk is impacted, and I find that my words are impacted. Two very important considerations for us to take with us today. Now, as you think about the week that is ahead of you, I want you to ask the Lord to help you. Here in just a moment, we're going to have a a time of invitation. And I want you to ask the Lord to help you to walk like a new man. I want you to ask him to give you the words of the new man. And I want you to ask him to help you. See, this all plays together to redeem the time. Because to go back to that idea of redeeming the time, as we, we're going to wrap this up. But none of us knows how much longer we have. Not one of us. For all I know, this could be the last message I ever preach at Lehigh Valley Baptist Church. This, this could be the last day that I live on this earth. This could be the last time that you sit in this auditorium. Tomorrow, when you go to work, it could be the last time that you have an interaction with that coworker. You see, when he says redeeming the time, he means it because time is swiftly passing away. If you think for just a moment about the interactions, for instance, that you may have with a loved one, with a friend, someone who's close to you who's, who doesn't know the Lord. Realistically speaking, how many more interactions will you have with them before there's no more time? Well, depending on how close you live to each other and the communication pathways and all that sort of thing, it is realistic to say that your next conversation with them might be the last time that you ever speak to them might be the last time that you ever have to talk to them about Christ. Some of you are going to see family coming up 
on the Labor Day holiday. Some of you are going to be with friends and spend time with them. Realistically speaking, ask yourself this question, could it be that this is my last opportunity? Now, I'm not saying that it is. God may give you many more opportunities. The problem is that we tend to borrow on that idea and we tell ourselves, I'll have lots more opportunities to talk to them about Christ. Today, I think I'll just talk about baseball. And then how sad we will be if, in fact, that was the last interaction. And we realize that God impressed upon our heart and opened the door of opportunity and we didn't walk through it because we weren't filled with the Spirit. What regrets would we have? You see? So he says we must be redeeming the time, not only in our walk, but also in our words, because as new men, as those who are new creatures in Jesus Christ, we have been given a high and holy job of representing Christ in this world. As new men, if someone were to take a picture of us at any moment of any day, the representation that they should see should be of Jesus Christ himself. In our walk and in our words, we should be like the one who redeemed us from our sins.